Yo, what's up, people? Welcome to our live stream. Today, we're going to be talking about how artists can use atmospheric perspective. And if you would like to learn how to turn your artistic weakness into your strength, definitely check out artprof.org, where we have lots of free resources, tutorials, critiques, pro development, and all that cool stuff. So, Clara, why don't you get us started on the conversation for today? Atmospheric perspective is a concept in two-dimensional artwork that creates the illusion of space. Now, this is tricky because cat, space is invisible and you can't touch it. <laughs> I mean, that's true. If I do this, I can tell you that I'm moving in space, but how am I supposed to prove it to you? <laughs> the other thing, it's everywhere, literally. And so how are you supposed to depict this concept of a thing that you can't touch, you can't see, but is everywhere? And Jordan, I think it's baffling for a lot of people, because if you draw an object, you draw an apple, it's, it's pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a big challenge. And I think that's one reason why people struggle with something like foreshortening, because it's the same concept. It's like bringing something towards you or, for, or pushing something further back in a space that's actually just a flat surface, like a piece of paper. So there's a lot of uh, little interesting tricks that you're going to have to use in order to convey that properly. So the way that I approach space is to say it's the distance between objects. That's your only hope when it comes to depicting space. Really, you have to reference objects because they are the thing that is, and they're a means of dividing the space. And so Kat, if we look at some of these images, what for is spatial intervals? Can you explain that more? Spatial intervals are the distances between objects. So to be able to create the illusion of space, you need to allude to the spatial intervals between objects because objects are tangible. We can see them, we can touch them. And therefore we can use this to measure intervals of space. For example, we have this manga and we have these creepy worm-like thorn things <laughs> that are on this hill. And you say to yourself, okay, there has to be a space between the thorn worms and the people. That is a spatial interval. And that's what you're searching for. Those are your anchor points as you articulate atmospheric perspective. Jordan, tell us about foregrounds, the space that is closest to us as the viewer. Mm -hmm. So the foreground uh, generally is going to have a lot more detail because it's closer to us in space, right? Something that's two feet away from you is going to look very different than something that's 200 feet away from you. Um, and it's also gonna have much higher contrast because again, that distance uh, is much closer than something that's further away. When you have something far away, it's usually covered up by pollution or gases or you know the just the atmosphere in general. And then you'll also see very crisp edges because again, it's closer to you. So anything that uh, is super nearby, you always wanna just pump up the colors, the sharpness, details, all that stuff. And then the things that are further away, you can minimize that. Kat, tell us about backgrounds. What's happening back there? 
backgrounds are the complete opposite of foregrounds. They are much farther away. They're usually the last thing you see before it just disappears off into the atmosphere. But essentially backgrounds should be blurrier, low contrast and have softer edges. That way you can tell the difference between the background and the foreground. Next time you're out for a walk, look at where things are located in relation to you. If I pick up a leaf and I put it in front of my face and I look at mountains in the distance, well, I can do that in Utah. <laughs> I look at the mountains and they're not going to be remotely as crisp, as detailed, as clear as a leaf that I'm holding in front of myself. So here's an example. Casper David Friedrich, he's the king of atmospheric perspective. And I feel like he just lays it all out for you. So Jordan, why do we see the crisp edges quicker than we see the soft ones? Uh, well, I think our eyes are naturally drawn to sharp contrast, right? So when you have a, a really sharp line, like for the trees here, um, and plus, you know, the value of light and dark, it's just automatically drawing our eyes there. With the soft edges in the background, it's more of a gradient. It's much softer and, uh, and something that we can almost overlook in a sense. And so I think it's just about the first, second, and third read in the image. Well, Ginger brings up a really good point. I've had this conversation with many people. This always threw me off. I thought things would get darker in the distance. So Kat, there's a difference between atmospheric perspective and light. Can you tell us what's the difference? Atmospheric perspective, I think it's good to think of it as if it gets farther away, it has to be less powerful somehow. So it could be smaller, it can be blurrier, it can be less detailed, it can be less dark, it can be less saturated. But when you throw light into the mix, it's completely different. So say you have a dark room, and then you have a bright object in front of you with the light shining on it. Obviously, that's the object that's more powerful because it has more light. And then as it recedes into a dark room, it gets less powerful. The light gets less powerful, so it gets darker. The thing to understand is that atmospheric perspective, it's not about value. So Benedict Cumberbatch is wearing a very dark jacket. He could be wearing a white jacket, but he's still in the same space. He's pretty close to me. I guess I'm standing on the roof with him before he jumps off the roof. And then you have pretty bright background. That's because the sun is probably rising. That doesn't have anything to do with space. That just happens to be that there's bright light coming from the background. Let's talk about details. So for example, we've got stranger things here and we see in the foreground, we've got details. In the background, there are no details. Now, Jordan, why are details or lack of them important in atmospheric perspective? Well, it's, I think it comes down to the basic idea of positive and negative space, right? We've talked about that many times on previous streams about composition, and it's a great way to show depth and space. And so when you have these details in the foreground can give you information as to what environment you're in. Um, like this particular image, it's very creepy, it's dark and red, and clearly there's something that's ominous about it. And you can tell that just by the uh, foreground features. And even though the ones in the background are less obvious, you could still tell there's something odd about this area. Sonnet says, what about when an artist is trying to give the illusion that the viewer is focusing on what's in the background so they make the background objects more crisp 
and the foreground more blurry. Okay, so Sonnet is talking about the opposite. Let's say we flip it. So the foreground is blurry and the background is not. That's sort of like in movies. Kat, have you seen movies where they intentionally make the person in front blurry? Yeah, I've also seen a pretty awful effect. Don't ever do this if you're into movies, but there's somebody in the foreground and somebody in the background and they just like switch focus between the two, <laughs> depending on who's speaking. It's a terrible effect, but it really makes me very aware <laughs> that somebody is in control of the focus in this film. Again, terrible effect, don't do it. But, and I mean, in this case, Sonnet, you have to focus on, literally and figuratively, focus on that little area of space and say, I want to make this part clearer, but atmospheric perspective still plays a role in here. So say we have a building in the background and you want to focus on the building. That building probably has other buildings behind it that still need to be blurrier. So sure, you can blur out the foreground and focus on that building, but know that even in that tiny space, atmospheric perspective is still at play. So any building that's closer to you would be clearer, sharper, more detailed, more saturated, et cetera. Sentience says, so basically a lot of atmospheric perspective is the way literal, quote, atmosphere affects the visibility of the subjects, mist, fog, et cetera. I mean, mist certainly helps <laughs> because mist makes everything blurry and low contrast, but that's not always the case, Jordan. Can you explain mist and fog versus atmospheric perspective? Yeah, I mean... So mist and fog is sort of like an enhancement. It's like a bonus. So there are certainly situations like that where the fog will create a serious mist or a serious uh, blurring effect in the background and you can't really see much. But atmosphere perspective is always there, even on a bright sunny day. So I live in I live in California where it never rains except for last month. And all you see is um, atmosphere perspective. You would do an overlook of the city because you would see clouds. You would see uh, cars that are, clean or that are easier to see we're close up versus 10 miles away right there's just it's always going to be hard to see things in the background no matter where you are so kat this is a illustration for your graphic novel that you're working on right now can you explain to us how you made the decisions regarding details in this illustration this is kind of the perfect example of atmospheric perspective using objects to denote space in an otherwise pretty empty space in this illustration. So I knew that any shoe that would be closer to you, you would see different things like the laces of the shoe or maybe the fur texture of the shoe or perhaps even some kind of tag on the shoe. But as the shoes go back, the shoes lose more detail because they're farther back. If all the shoes were just as detailed as the foreground, my eye wouldn't know where to focus. And my eye would also be very confused about the space. Really, Jordan, I think sometimes atmospheric perspective is almost us directing the viewer where to look. I mean, in this illustration, we have the figure who is tying the shoelace. And clearly that's where the action is. We don't want the viewer looking at the top. Yeah, I mean, in some situations, I guess you can have the most minimal background where it's just white behind the character or something like that. But most times you don't want to do that. Most times you want to have them be in a lived in setting and you want to be able to direct the viewer in any image that you're creating, whether it's to a character, to an object, um, to you know some 
creature or plant or whatever it is. And you know, you can use the idea or the concept of atmospheric perspective to your advantage in those scenarios to have them look exactly where you want them to go. Well, this is a good point from Ginger. It's so tempting to put detail on everything. Details are what dazzle people. Whenever you hear people talk about a really wonderful drawing that they're excited about, it's very common to hear, oh my gosh, that drawing was so good. It had so many details. It's so beautiful. But Kat, details can mess with you, actually, <laughs> if there's too many of them. That's something I'm struggling with with my graphic novel currently. Everything is so detailed that I actually have to scale back and take it away because it's good to know that too much of anything is not a good thing. Even if details bedazzle viewers and impress people, the instant that you put too many details there, people kind of understand, oh, this person can't control the amount of detail they put in their image. Therefore, the detail's not that impressive because they literally cannot control it. You don't want things to compete with Wolverine. I want to look at him. <laughs> like if we have tons of details and I can see all the ornate architecture in Professor X's private school for mutant kids, it's just, I don't know where to look. I mean, I guess I would know where to look no matter what <laughs> when it comes to Wolverine. But the thing is, I think oftentimes detail is about establishing a hierarchy saying, you know something, these parts are more important than the other parts. And so Jordan, I sometimes think about it as a movie where you can't have 15 people be the main actor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's really hard. And you know, this conversation or this portion of the conversation actually reminds me of Where's Waldo books. And what is, if anyone has ever looked through a Where's Waldo book, the part that makes it confusing is everything has the exact same amount of detail. And you and mm. it, they have the same types of reds all over the place. And it's for that purpose, it's totally fine because the goal is to spend hours looking for this one character. But normally, when you're trying to create an illustration, like what Kaz is doing, or like a graphic novel or something like that, you want to have some sort of hierarchy. You want to make it different in parts of the image. So Lisa's asking, blue becoming more dominant in the distance is part of atmospheric perspective. So Lisa, I wasn't sure which image you're referring to. So if you want to clarify that in the chat for us, we can come back to your question and answer it there. The whole thing about atmospheric perspective is it doesn't have a lot to do with the actual scene. You can have arcane here, which is this fantasy world. You can have a picture of a tree. And just within that one object, you can have atmospheric perspective. So it doesn't have to do with distance because Janet here is asking, does atmospheric perspective depend on the amount of space outdoor versus indoor? You can apply it to anything. So Kat, mm -hmm. I think this idea that atmospheric perspective has to be this like epic landscape. It can be, but that's not everything. I think the name is a little deceiving when you say atmospheric perspective because people think, oh, it must involve atmosphere. It must involve something grandiose, large, a huge landscape. But really, atmospheric perspective can be applicable in just a table of objects versus an entire landscape. Because once you start to apply atmospheric perspective to any scene, large or small, you start to get a better understanding of the space of that scene. So another thing you can do to push atmospheric perspective is play with scale. 
So Jordan, what's happening here in terms of scale in regards to the street lamps in your environment? Right. So this is where the perspective aspect comes in because um, the lamps are supposed to be roughly the same size. So, um, but they obviously look smaller in the distance, not just because the way the one point perspective is naturally going. So, um, so doing something as simple as make objects small in the background, make it less detailed, you know, you can't see a whole lot. You, I really just drew lines. If you really look closely, <laughs> they're just kind of like thick lines that kind of resemble the same shape and you automatically read it as the same thing. It's a repeated pattern. Anytime you are looking at a space and you see something that is repeated within that space, hold on to that. Because sure, I mean, you could have a landscape of trees and everything's all different sizes and whatever. But Kat, I know whenever I go into, let's say, a retail store and there are all these shelves and they're all the same height, I hang on to those shelves because I know they're going to help me with scale. Oh, absolutely. Because it's kind of a, a bookmark. It's a point of reference. Once you see this point of reference repeated smaller somewhere, you'd say, oh, according to my reference, that object should be this height. And if it's smaller, that means it's this amount of distance away. Sentient says, so maybe you could choose not to use atmospheric perspective if you wanted more chaos for the viewer and a lack of depth. Not that those are typically things you want. Well, if you're doing Waters Waldo, <laughs> you are trying to pull people in different directions and to confuse them, to make it very disorienting. Because you can see here in this L.S. Lowry piece, the people in the distance are tiny. You can barely even see that they're there. And that's a way for the painter to organize the space. Because that really is what we're doing, Jordan, when we compose. We're organizing things. Right. I mean, when we, that's part of why we do thumbnails and brainstorming and things like that. We want we usually have a specific idea in mind that we want to convey to the viewer or the audience. And so in some cases, like with the Where's Waldo, you want everything to just kind of blend in. Some cases you want things to stand out. And it's really just a matter of how you differentiate the two and which one you're really going for to get the point across that you want. I'm so happy you're here with us, Lala Palooza. First time witnessing a live stream. I'm so happy. Well, tell us in the chat if you are watching a stream for the first time or if you're a lurker and have never commented before. Just say hi. I just love it when people do that. So Lisa's asking, blue becomes more dominant in the distance of most landscapes. I think example mountains, exception when there's a lot of pollution. Really, really depends on the landscape. I mean, here in Utah, so much stuff is bright orange because of the color of the rock. So Kat, does color have anything to do with atmospheric perspective? Color has such a major role in atmospheric perspective because the general rule is that any color that's closer to you would be more saturated and also darker. So the value would be darker and the saturation would be higher. As for something that becomes more blue as it recedes in the background, again, depends on the atmosphere. It could be a gray foggy day, in which case it would not get bluer the farther back you went. But if you're in Utah with an enormous sky that's majestic and grandiose and incredibly saturated blue, you can use that to your advantage and say, okay, anything going back in space is gonna get more blue but anything in front of me is gonna be this bright orange of the rock, right? And so sure, you can play around with the blue of the atmosphere depending on the landscape, 
But overall, color has such a huge role in atmospheric perspective. To clarify, Lisa, it's not specifically blue. Like it could be orange, it could be yellow. It doesn't matter the color. It's the saturation, the intensity of the color. So it's not that blue does that in all landscapes, could in some circumstances, but not always. Carolyn says, I always thought atmospheric perspective was simply the ways in which the atmosphere filters light in the distance. This seems like much more. Oh, it's everything. It's light, it's color, it's articulation. Jordan, it's, it's a big package. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's sort of like the concept, when I say perspective, you know, and that's included in atmospheric perspective, obviously, but there's so much that goes into it, right? There's scale, there's one point, two point, three point, there's, you know, foreshortening of the figure, there's um, details um, that we don't even consider sometimes, but it's it's a big topic. And so it's almost, uh, it's, it becomes challenging because you try and cover so much in such a simple description, but really it's an all encompassing uh, term, I would say. Sonnet's asking, can you use the laws of atmospheric perspective in abstract work? Kat, do you think that's possible? Absolutely possible. Otherwise, how are you going to denote space in that abstract work? Atmospheric perspective is versatile in all situations. You could have a brushstroke in an abstract painting that maybe is very blunt, that is crisp in the edges and is really bright and saturated. And then maybe in the background, you have soft muted colors. So it, it really is a little confusing sometimes because you really can apply it to almost anything. But I think the key thing is to think deliberately about it because Jordan so oftentimes, yes, we look at what we're seeing, but sometimes what we're seeing is not enough and we have to stray from our reference. I always recommend to push a little bit further than your reference. Um, sometimes it, it can be like, if you're doing a character or something, sometimes it's the pose, maybe you wanna make it more extreme. Sometimes the colors you you wanna do are more saturated or more vibrant. And so I think I think of reference as a starting off point or a jumping off point. And then from there, take your own artistic uh, freedom and liberty to enhance it in the way that you see fit that works best for your image. So Kat, you and I were in Portugal last spring, and this was in Obidos, which is this small little town. And I was so attracted to these oranges. They have this Portuguese gin on top of them, but it's a really complicated scene. And you can see this is where the drawing ended up. And I had to majorly depart from what I saw to get the atmospheric perspective to work. So Kat, why do you think within the scene, I made the oranges so bright and intense? To be able to tell the oranges are closer to us. Because if you go and look at the photo versus the drawing, the bright blue saturated stripes of the building in the background, they really pop out to you. In fact, when I look at this photo and I just, was interpreting, inter interpreting it by color. I would say, in fact, the blue is closer to me than the oranges are. And so when you are drawing the scene, you really have to interpret your reference. Do not copy it. And so by interpretation, you say, this blue is farther away. Therefore, I should make it blurrier, lower contrast, and have softer edges. So if you do a comparison, this is the background in the reference photo. And those blue stripes, they are crisp. They look like they were collaged on top of the scene. 
but I chose in my drawing to actually make them really light in value. I cut back on the contrast and those little pots of flowers on the right-hand side, they're pretty detailed, but I barely touched them in my drawing. And you can see how I deliberately shifted the details and the blurriness to get the atmospheric perspective to really work in this scene. Because if I tried it any other way, it wouldn't have worked if I was very faithful to the reference photo. So Janet's asking, would you use atmospheric perspective in a still life? Jordan, is that possible? Uh, yeah, if, I mean, if you're talking about a really small still life, you could definitely do that, but um, maybe not have it be as extreme as something like a multi-mile landscape or something like that, but you could easily make some images uh, or some pieces in the background a little bit blurrier or a little fuzzier. Maybe you have like five objects and the front one just has more crisp edges and things like that, and the one in the back doesn't. So you can always you know, find ways to, to play with that. Look at this. We've got all these people watching us for the first time. We have Michelle moved from Salt Lake City to a small town in Kansas. There aren't any art resources here. Arkeo, first time from Alabama, watched some of the printmaking videos. Awesome. I'm always happy to bring on more nerdy printmaking content wherever we can. And we have a super chat from Heather who says, getting familiar to super stickers and chat, easy way to support with small amounts. Absolutely, we have another one from RB Dick, so we owe some of you some animations. Thank you so much for supporting us, everybody, because those super chats, they definitely add up over time. Let's see, we've got Mark. What if you want to make a piece very photorealistic, like in the example of the Portugal scene? What do you think, Jordan? Uh, if you want to make a scene super realistic, there's still I think you should still have atmospheric perspective because, again, you're still going to want some level of uh, focus on a particular area. And if you look at just any video game concept art, for example, there's a lot of it, um, a lot of atmospheric perspective in the scene. So it's really just, again, what works best for your image. and it doesn't have to be as exaggerated as uh, another if you're doing something really stylized. It, so that's something where you just kind of have to tailor it towards what it is that you're trying to do. And the thing is, Kat, if I had taken the reference photo and I didn't apply atmospheric perspective, it would be very close to the photo, which to me is not that exciting. At that point, you have to ask yourself, why am I even drawing this in the first place when I can just take a photo of it? Again, it's all about interpreting your reference. You got to take that and transform it yourself somehow. Otherwise, why even draw it? Why not just take a photo? Melissa says, I feel like atmospheric perspective immediately helps the artist induce emotional reaction as well as inducing other sensory reactions. Yeah, so we've been talking a lot about the look of things, okay? But Jordan, why do you think maybe that these oranges could entice us with those sensory reactions versus the pots in the way distance? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with the saturated colors. And I remember um, doing some some assignments in class while I was in art school, and we would talk about painting food. And our teachers were always saying, use saturated colors because that tends to look more enticing. Like if you look at the way like a Miyazaki movie handles food or something like that, or a lot of animes for that matter, they always look amazing. And that's one of the reasons why. So 
Um, so if you want to entice us, use things that are bright and colorful and fun. Uh, and food will always draw people in. And I do think, Kat, we shouldn't be slaves to our reference photos. We should feel as artists, we have the right and ability to manipulate things to serve what we're trying to accomplish. I agree. And I think a lot of being an artist is seeing the potential in a little bit of everything and taking the best of everything and combining it yourself. There is a really cool quote from, I think, Maurice Sendak, who illustrated where the wild things are, where he said that everybody is making soup, where you take a little bit of your history, you take a little bit of things that you really like, you take your life experiences and together you boil it into your own soup your own unique flavor. And so it's all about finding the right ingredients for your soup everywhere. So Jordan, this is the contemporary photographer, Robert Park Harrison. And this is different in that it's a very surrealistic scene. This is created, I think he does some photo montage techniques. I'm not really sure what his process is, but I think especially when you have a fantasy world you need atmospheric perspective on your side. Yeah, I mean, just the, the horizon line in general, it's so fuzzy, it's so blurry, and it feels like it's way further out than what it might even actually be in real life because of that effect. And then when you compare it to the uh, the wood planks that he's uh, kneeling on and look at all the detail that's there, it just automatically conveys a very, very strong distance. Yeah, like I really love this one. There's a little figure in the upper right-hand corner. You might even miss him if you're not looking that carefully. I don't know what this is. It's like a giant ball of cloth and it's falling apart and you can see individual threads coming down. But then Kat, what's happening over here on the far left? There's a strange cityscape there, which is very different from the rural ground that we see in front of us. And even though th these two locations are completely different, there's this ground and then there's a cityscape, I still read the cityscape as being way farther out because of atmospheric perspective. Jordan, I also think a big part of atmospheric perspective is recognizing foreground, middle ground, background. And I really think space is easier when you have all three. Like sometimes when people want to do like a very shallow space like i had a lot of students whenever i did a space unit at RISD, they would just draw a corner and i'm like yeah you can do it in the corner but it's a lot harder so actually i think jordan practicing atmospheric perspective it's easier with the bigger space i agree i think because i mean again the invisible space that we talked about at the beginning of the stream is going to be much easier to see on a subject like this where they're out in a some sort of field or uh, in that cityscape with the uh, cyberpunk image. And so when you have those three elements, the foreground, middle ground, background, it's going to just create, it's like creating chapters. It's going to have a more fulfilling effect. And it's very common, very easy to actually miss one of those. Like I think usually the mid ground or the background is usually one that's kind of forgotten. <laughs> and everyone remembers the foreground because it tends to be more fun because detailed and all that stuff. But it, I think it's important to have all three of those. Well, and Kat, I think like in the cyberpunk edge runners view, creating an epic space is kind of a big power trip, isn't it? 
Absolutely. I think a lot of the reason why I draw certain things I draw is because they're hard to draw. And I find a lot of fulfillment from doing it. So be, to be able to create the illusion of a grandiose landscape with atmospheric perspective is kind of like magic for some people. And I'm a wizard controlling the magic. <laughs> Thank you so much, Anna, for your support, who says atmospheric perspective is one of my favorite tools because I don't really see linear perspective. Thank you so much. Yeah, linear perspective is a totally separate thing. And I feel like, as you said, Kat, the terminology doesn't help because linear perspective is all about geometry and things lining up. But Jordan, atmospheric perspective is for stuff that doesn't line up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the way I see it, it's almost, I don't want to say it's more conceptual in a, in a lot of ways, but it's it's a lot of theory. Like not everything is just so cut and dry. Like perspective, you're either at the vanishing point or you're not. But with atmospheric perspective, you can, you know, pump up the, the fog or the mist or saturate this color and it all just depends. And sometimes certain results for one image will look better or worse on another. I want to give a shout out to Ada Girl 7 for the super sticker. Thank you very much. You're amazing, everybody. Keep all of those super chats coming during this live stream. Yeah, I, I feel like there's a lot of confusion, Kat, about where linear perspective versus atmospheric perspective exists. Because the thing is, this view, okay, this is a cityscape, all right? Things do line up because it's geometry. There is linear perspective in here, but there's also atmospheric. So what do we do with this? I think it's about finding which situations need what. So something that's very geometric and man-made, man a lot of perspective in terms of linear perspective will be used, whether that's one, two, or three point. But it's also a good rule of thumb to include atmospheric perspective regardless, because that is a very basic understanding of space. Things farther away are smaller. That's atmospheric perspective. And linear perspective is really to help with geometric landscapes. But things that are organic, like people and trees, there's no linear perspective in there. So there, that's where you have to really be able to separate them because I know it just get very, very confusing very fast. Ginger says, atmospheric perspective seems so intimidating. Well, any tips, Jordan? Because it, it is, for a lot of people, a new concept, and it's a lot to digest. Uh, the way I break it down is, uh, is put it in steps, right? So I think the easiest thing for me to do is split up into foreground, milligram, background first and determine like where that invisible line is. And then I figure out what my focus of the image is, because it could be something in the distant background, or it could be in the middle or foreground. And once I determine that, then I could say, okay, what colors can I use to pump this out the most? Everything else I'll just dilute um, or, or line, uh, contrast or shape or whatever. Um, and if you kind of break it down in those simple steps, then I think it'll be much easier and less intimidating. Girl says, love the layers in The Arrival by Sean Tan. What would happen if the blurry were in front? Kat, what do you think? I think the focus would shift we would be able to focus our eye on whatever you make the clearest. And so I think in order to do that though, you need to understand the rules of atmospheric perspective. Understand that anything that's high contrast and detailed 
we're going to read it as closer to you, but it's also a way of leading your eye there. So you have to know this fundamental concept before having fun with it. Sonnet says, is Kat the queen of atmospheric perspective like she is in linear perspective? I think so. <laughs> because especially Kat, you also know how to combine them. All right, everybody, this Google slideshow is available. The link is in the YouTube video description below. Please join Kat and I for a stage session in our Discord immediately after the live stream. That is where you get to chat with us on voice. And there are still a few spots in our workshop on portraits, expressionistic color. That's coming up February 11th. Ignore the registration thing. I obviously did not update the slide, <laughs> but you can register for that until two days before February 11th. What's happening tonight, Jordan? Tonight, I'm gonna to be doing a part two on my live stream drawing monsters for Shadowboxers, and it will be on the Joe McFo Show YouTube channel tonight at 6 p.m. Pacific. So please come, please draw, come hang out. Join our Patreon group. We have so much fun in here, everybody. We have weekly voice sessions where you get to chat with me and Jordan and Lauren and Deep D on voice. I give critiques in the Patreon group. I don't do that in the public channels. It's a wonderful group of small, it's a small group of wonderful artists. They support each other. It's really a two-way street. And there is no three-to-one critique rule that we have in the public critique channels. Hang out with us. We have so much fun in these voice sessions. We talk about everything. I give pretty comprehensive feedback and it's just so fun there it's like 24 7 art party i come back on monday and i'm like dude you guys were partying all weekend or <laughs> two you can sponsor a video guess what everybody i found a wonderful model here in salt lake city and i also found a photo studio that's not absurdly expensive and i want to shoot a video for all of you of a model posing in real time and hundreds of reference photos so we need funding to make this happen. The total is $600 to get all this done. You can make this content happen because there are, to my knowledge, there aren't really a lot of videos online of a model posing in real time. So we need your help with this. Go down to the YouTube video description below for how to sponsor a video because so many people in our community made these videos possible. They would not be here without sponsorship from our community. We don't need those big corporate companies. We can just together make this happen. Our prof has many services, artist calls, portfolio critiques, statement editing, and brand new personal art curriculums. And thank you so much to our top Patreon supporters. You're all incredible for helping us here. Visit ourprof.org. There's lots of content on there that's not on YouTube. Use the search bar. Our Prof has a podcast. It's available on Spotify and also on iTunes. Subscribe to our channel for more tutorials, critiques, and business tips. Everybody, thank you so much for watching. We'll see you next time. Bye.